0: Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Last week we looked at prayer as Paul prayed, the Apostle Paul prayed. We looked at the elements, these dominant elements that characterized his framework of prayer. And uh, they, were, they were simple in a way. It was an expression, his prayer is always an expression of his thankfulness, and his prayers are always a, a, a characterized by this confidence that God is going to vindicate his people, and so we, we find, if, we, if I summarize that in a way, is that prayer must be approached from a position of faith expressing itself in love. Because thankfulness is an expression that when we come to God, we have received His love, and now we are responding to Him in love, Thankfulness is an expression of, it's actually the language of faith. And then that, that faith gives us a confidence that whatever affliction we're, we're experiencing, or, or even if people themselves are afflicting us, that God will, God will clear the record. God will, will, will vindicate his, his people. And, and one of the things that's so amazing about what Paul teaches us in the prayers, uh, particularly uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, is that God has taken us, who are sinners in need of a Savior, and he's taken us and he's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his wonderful Son. And he's done so by taking the just penalty of our sin and putting it on Jesus Christ, who satisfies completely the justice of God by becoming the penalty for our sin, but then changes our status by giving us the righteousness of Christ so that as we come to God in prayer, we who have been the objects of his grace and his mercy can now, Paul teaches us, begin to petition God from a standpoint of his justice. Paul said over and over again, God is just. He will rescue you. God is just. He will afflict those who afflict you. This is, this is a bit mind-blowing that when you come to prayer, you're not coming as a beggar saying, oh, please, God, I don't deserve this, but will you do this for me? But rather you come to God having, had, having been given a whole new status, not as a sinner, but rather as a son or a daughter who can come to the Father and ask for justice. <laughs> This is is the grace of God. This is the new status of every believer who prays and who prays aright. So when we come and we begin to ask God in our prayers, then what we petition should be worth speaking to God about. It should be something not just trivial or superficial, but we need to begin to understand we have this access now to the justice of God And our petitions should reflect that. And so Paul does this in the petitions that he gives for the Thessalonians in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. It's just two verses, just two petitions here that we'll look at. With this in mind, Paul says, everything we've said up to this point has been the framework that Paul has in his mind when he prays, thankfulness, this absolute confidence of the vindication of God. With this in mind, he says, that you're now able to appeal to the justice of God on your behalf. He says, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what kind of petitions do we see Paul bringing and presenting to the living God? If if we begin to understand how Paul uh, asks God and what Paul asks of God, we will begin to learn how to really see things, not just things to pray about, but actually see things brought about by our prayers. So one thing is this, if we are grateful for the most important things, that's the thankfulness. And if we're determined that we're going to live with more than just this moment in thought, but the eternal destiny and the consummation of the kingdom of God, if that's in our mind, the return of Christ is uppermost to us, then what kinds of things will we pray for? In other words, we have a kingdom mindset. We have a a glorious mindset that, that God is going to vindicate his people. So Paul says, here's the two petitions that I pray. So let's look at the first one. He prays, that God might make these Christians, these Thessalonians, that he might make them worthy of their calling. So this is a worthy petition, in other words. With everything in mind that Paul has said about your new position, about coming to God in loving response with the language of faith, thankfulness, and absolute confidence that God is going to vindicate you. And he says... Here's what I pray. I pray that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Now, the problem for many Christians is they only think of calling in terms of some kind of vocation or some kind of ministry calling, like a call to be a pastor or a missionary or something like that. That is not the way Paul writes. In the writings of Paul, one The call of God on anybody's life is always effective. God does not give an ineffectual call on the life of anyone. And so what Paul means by this is anyone who has been saved by God, anybody who has come into a saving relationship with God, has done so because of the call of God on their life. So the call... And to be called by God means here to be saved, to be brought into the kingdom of God, becoming a citizen of the kingdom, uh, that you belong to God, that you now have an acceptance before God, that you are loved as if you were Christ himself and you're treated as if you were as righteous as Christ is righteous. That's what it means to be called. It's not talking here about a specific call to a a specific assignment, it's about the call into relationship and intimacy with God himself. So, I mean, one thing to recognize in this prayer, and one thing to have in mind in our own lives, is that Paul never thinks that we're called by God because we deserve it. His own life is an example. How could he think he deserved it? Because while he was busily uh, persecuting the church and trying to destroy the church, it was in that moment that Paul was called into a saving relationship with God by the grace of God. So it wasn't because he deserved it. It was actually when he was least deserving that the call of God came for him to be saved. So Paul here is not praying that the Thessalonians might become worthy enough to be called. So if there's any sense in your life where you're saying, you know, I'm not worthy to be called. Look, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, then you are are that because he called you and he was effective in in his call. You've already been called. These Thessalonians have already been called. So what Paul is saying now is because they are called, they need the grace of God, they need the power of God to live up to the calling which they have received. Paul is praying that God himself would make them worthy of that calling. Now this means, that what he's praying is that God God will work in their lives in such a way that they'll grow. That they'll grow in all the things of their life, in every area of their life in such a way that they that, that actually pleases God and that God is pleased with them. See, the one who's going to assess, the one who looks and says, are you living up to the calling that you have received? is not the church. It's not other Christians or other believers or the world itself. It's God who really assesses and says, here's what I've, here's what I've called you into. Now, are you living up to what you've received? And this is the important thing here is Paul is explaining in other letters and other teachings. He's explaining what has been received. So if you begin to understand all that you've received, then you'll begin to realize, I need to live up to what I've received. So by the free grace of God, this is God's own free gift to us. We have been forgiven. So the forgiveness was free didn't cost us anything. It cost him everything. By his free grace, we have been taken from status of sinners and apart from the covenant of God, and we've been made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. By his free grace, we have received justification, which means we have an acceptance before God that we didn't deserve, that we didn't perform for. But it is an acceptance that is complete and absolute before God. We are not only accepted by God, but we are acceptable to God because of the righteousness of Christ to our account. We've been given the very spirit of Christ. Sometimes I'm amazed by this, this thought. You have something more than Abraham had, than Moses had, than David had. You have the spirit of Christ in a way they never had that, the spirit. And we have tasted, as we have, we have joined our life to the life of Christ, we have tasted eternal life. And so Paul says, of all these things that you've received freely, will you not become motivated and even empowered and enabled by the work of God in your life to live and to be worthy of this calling? Now, the recognition has to come, and why this prayer is so important is that none of us were worthy when we received it. And so Paul wants us to become what we were not, and so he prays to that end. He's praying that Christians might become worthy of all that it means to be a Christian. I can't think of anything more worthy of us praying in these days of of such unrest, days of uncertainty, days of difficulty, everything that we were used to having been destabilized in our lives. And so many of us feel like we don't know what's ahead for for us. And even what's in the present is difficult and challenging. And so Paul's prayer is in the midst of these circumstances that you wouldn't just value comfort convenience, that you wouldn't just value a kind of worldly, earthly success and security, but rather you'd start to value what you have received by grace and that your heartfelt prayer would be his heartfelt prayer, that we would be worthy of all that it means to be a Christian, that there would be a faithfulness that would be expressed, a perseverance being expressed, a character in us that is remarkable and distinct from what we were that we would really show what it means to be children of the living God. And we'd be worthy of the love that held Jesus to the cross, that took Jesus to the cross and held him there. Now, it's interesting how different most people's petitions are from the worthy petition of the Apostle Paul. So often the petition that we make is, God, make me successful. Give me wealth, give me popularity, give me health, give me brilliance, you know, make me triumphant, make me happy, make me beautiful, whatever it might be. Even if we don't say them out loud, those are the things that we have expectation that somehow God will give us this kind of worldly success or this kind of earthly you know, security type of thing. And Paul doesn't pray that. Still less, you know, Paul doesn't encourage us to pray that all our problems will disappear. He doesn't pray that for them. They're faced with numerous problems, numerous fronts on which persecution and affliction is happening. And Paul doesn't pray, God, you know, make their lives safe, make their lives comfortable. He doesn't pray that at all. He brings this framework that we've been talking about, that, that in the midst of the trouble that they see, that God, that God is at work, that his grace is evident. He's already thanked God for the evidence of the grace that has caused these Christians to flourish in affliction. And he's he's always praying, thinking of this ultimate vindication that God will have for all of us when Christ returns. So he picks up this theme then, that in the midst of whatever is going on, and he'll say this again and again as we look at his prayers, He's calling us as Christians, just like he called the Thessalonians, to grow up into Christian maturity. Basically, Paul is saying this, even constantly, he's telling, in every letter that I read of the Apostle Paul, he's saying, you need to become what you are. You need to become, you are a child of God by the choice and by the adoption of the Father. You have been freely chosen to be his adopted daughter, his adopted son, to have the status of one who has access to the father like none other because you are his child. And all of this has happened because of the free grace that has been given to us in Christ. Now, rise up into your status. Rise up into your maturity. God has called you. Do not sit there saying, has God called me? If you're a Christian, you are a Christian because God called you. Now what Paul is saying, your prayer life, your prayers for yourself, for others, need to be that we live up to that calling. That we're worthy of it. So what is he saying in this petition? Well, he's saying that you would increasingly manifest holiness. That you would be self-denying. That you would abound in love. That your whole life, your speech, your dealings with others would be full of integrity. And he's going he's to go back to this again and again. That you would find a value above every other value in knowing God. In getting past your distractions. Getting past your busyness and delighting in his word and delighting as you grow in trust and obedience to your heavenly father. See, what this shows is a whole new perspective of life. That life isn't about getting God to come along with you and bless what you're doing. But rather that your life is in God, that this call on your life is It precedes every other demand on your life because it's in the call of God that you'll have the power to live your life in a way that's worthy of the call that he has on your life. See, our problem is we'll tack on holiness if it's convenient. We'll deny self if we can see some self-advantage. But Paul is saying, no, this this has got to be from your inside out, that you start to look at yourself as a called one of God and that you're beginning to look at everything from this perspective. Jesus himself taught this when he said, you know, there's a a need of clothes, there's a need of work, there's a need of food, there's a need of shelter, there's all these things, but your father knows that you have need of these things. He said, but if you really want to live a a life that's remarkable and a life that's satisfying and fulfilling. Then he says, you don't go after the, the work and the clothes and the food and the shelter and say, oh God, provide these things. Instead, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be taken care of. They'll be added to you. Even Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he taught us to get our lives in alignment with God as our ultimate, as our Father who takes care of us, and then also to align our will to his will. And then we pray, give us this day our daily bread. I've often seen that God has touched the distribution of the bread. He's, He's touched these other places to get our attention to get our attention that our priority's in the wrong place, that what we want to pray first is give me the bread and then maybe I'll think about you being my father and then maybe I'll think about your goodness and then maybe I'll think about holiness or surrender to your will. And what Paul is saying, what Jesus taught is that life has to be looked at from the inside out, not the outside in. Not am I getting enough bread so then I will praise God but rather, I will praise God for being God. I will praise him for the free grace that He has shown to me to make me his son. I trust him and obey him so his will on earth will be done in my life as it is in heaven. And guess what happens? You don't always have to constantly be praying for your daily bread when you're making God your ultimate. But when you make whatever you've called your sustaining of life, which the Bible often calls bread like like the source of life. Whatever you've made your source of life, if it's not God, then God can't supply it. He has to actually oppose it. So Paul and Jesus are teaching us how to really get access to great answers in prayer. And one of the things that Paul is showing here, and and one of the reasons I like this passage for us so much in this study, is we're really not strong enough. And we're not disciplined enough to take these steps ourselves. If I could just become holy, if I could just be self-denying all the time, I wouldn't need to pray this prayer. But the fact is, I need this prayer because I need God to give me the power even to, even to have the desire to live a life worthy of His calling. I need His help just to even want to make His kingdom my priority and His righteousness above all else. So Paul is praying this. He's not, you see, he's not asking that the Thessalonians try harder and then God will bless them. No, he's praying for them to the end that, that God himself will count them worthy of his calling. So basically what this prayer is all about is asking God to so work in their lives, to so make them worthy that God himself will see them as worthy. See, it's not up to me to judge, have I, have I reached that plateau of worthiness? Only God can really judge and only God can really count. But what Paul is saying is that he wants God to be so at work in their lives. And, and what I'm saying I want for myself and I want for you is to God, for God to be so at work in our lives that God himself will say, yes, that's what I count as worthy of all that I've called you to. That's what I count as worthy of all that I've given to you. You see, he has to work, and I have to surrender to his work so that then that worthiness of all that I've received will then become a reality in the way that I live. See, I can't do this by just trying harder. I see this quite often at the altar. People are convicted that their lives are not worthy of the calling or the, or the grace that they've received. And they come to the altar and they promise to do better. It's a, it, it's a, <laughs> I tend to be blunt. It's not a good prayer. Because it doesn't work that way. Even if you begin to move towards maturity, even if you move towards being counted worthy, it's because God is at work in such a way and His work is evident in your surrender, in your faith, in your trust, in your obedience, that he counts you as worthy. I mean, this is what we're supposed to not only be praying for ourselves, but for our family, for our church, that God would move in our midst, having called us, having called us as first and foremost to be his children, to be the followers of Christ, but also calling us, for assignments during this time of our lives? Are we praying that God would move in such a way that we would be counted worthy of all that we have received in the grace of God? So Paul prays this and he, he teaches us, pray it for your family, pray it, pray it for your church, pray it for your children, for your, your spouse. But you know what? We spend an awful lot of time and, and a lot of our energy on things that are very temporary, very transitory. And, and, and we get a lot of anxiety and worry and fear. I've seen parents be so afraid their kids weren't going to get into a good school, that they weren't going to get a good job, that they weren't going to you know, be happy or whatever it is. Do you understand? The teaching here is really simple. If you shoot for happiness or the happiness of others, you will never get it. But if you go for the glory of God, if you go for a life worthy and count it worthy of the calling of God and worthy of all you've received from God, a byproduct of that will be happiness, satisfaction. Because he's promised he will, he will give you a life worth living. Because his call is to life. Even Jesus said it this way, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. So when you pray, are you praying from a very narrow inside your circumstances kind of perspective or are you praying from eternity's perspective? Well, it's going to manifest in the main things you're praying for the people you love, whether it's your children, for yourself, or for other believers, See, what we need to be praying is that we will live up to the calling because then everything else that really matters will take place and God himself will not only superintend, but give greater and greater resources, greater and greater power and presence for us to live up and be counted worthy of the calling. Well, that's just the first one. Now, That one's a big one. It's probably uh, enough for us to chew on, but there are two here. And the second one, friends, is is incredibly important that that you understand that these go together. Okay, so the prayer is that you live a life worthy of your calling. But then Paul says something in this, this second request. He says that God by his power might bring to fruition Each Christian, you as a Christian, your good, faith-prompted purposes. You see, God wants to bless your purposes. He wants to resource your purposes. He has at his very heart your fulfillment, your your ultimate success, not, not some of the successes that some of us settle for. Here's what Paul says. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that by his power God may bring to fruition every desire that you have for goodness and your every deed prompted by your faith. So what does Paul mean by that? Well, (laughs) Paul has in his mind that because you're a Christian and because you're God's people now, that through the conversion of the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ and the conversion of your mind to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that what's going on inside of you In this new identity, in this new person, Uh, you know, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. So so Paul says, behold, all things have become new. You've developed new desires. You've developed desires for goodness. And you've got things that you want to do that are prompted by faith. And, And he's really talking about dreams and visions. And he's talking about destiny, He's talking about the plans for your life and the goals for your life. That these are all, when you, when you separate out the fleshly, earthly kind of centered goals and you begin to see this new creation in you and you begin to get new desires and new ideas and new vision. Paul is saying <laughs> that you need God's power. And you need this intimacy with God in prayer so that those wonderful visions and those revelations from God about your life and your purpose so that they come to fruition. Paul is saying he wants to take all of the he wants God to take these purposes that God has put in your heart for your life. This wiring that God has given you and Paul is praying that God will work them out so that they're not just visions and dreams. They're not just wishes. But rather that they come to fruition, they come to fulfillment. Here's what I see with many Christians. Is they have many wonderful ideas and dreams, but they never get done. And, and so, so all it leads to is not fruition, but frustration. Frustration. And then you have people who they have not heard from God, but they made a decision. I'm going to do this. I'm going to organize this. I'm going to do this effort. And they don't know how to see God and they haven't sought God. And so what that leads to is futility. So to have a dream from God and not see it come to fruition is frustration. To run ahead of God and do your own thing and ask God to bless your mess leads to nothing but frustration. And so Paul is, I, can't I just urge on you how beautiful and worthy this prayer is? That God is looking, having called you, he's looking to fulfill the dreams and the visions that he's placed in your life. For he has the power to fulfill your purposes. And so Paul is praying in that way. You see, to pray in, this way, in that way is to get yourself in the path of the power of God. Here's one of the statements that's helpful in this. Is, the truth is that unless God works in us and through us, unless God empowers these good purposes of ours, they will not engender any enduring spiritual fruit. They will not display any life-transforming, people-changing power. Unless the Lord builds the house, the psalmist says, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. You see, unless the Lord fulfills our good, faith-prompted purposes, they will remain fruitless, either empty dreams or frenetic activity with no life but in either case, spiritually anemic. You see, this, what this means is, in so many ways, is we've got to look at our lives and assess our agendas, our priorities. Even, even as I look at our church and I look at what we're going through in the pandemic, I'm constantly assessing and saying, Lord, Lord, you've disrupted our lives. What, what do you want us to be now that we have to basically restart, we have to basically kind of re-envision our our goals and our purposes. It's not that he isn't using experience. It's not that he isn't using the teachings of others, but in in some way it's got to be that we are hearing our mission, our direction. We have to hear that what we're doing and, and, and the effort we're giving is really being prompted by him. It's his agenda. It's his mission. Or else our requests are going to be really flat, very spiritually anemic. See, as we find answers to the questions, God, what's our purpose and our goal in you? Then we can go with confidence and say, in your great power, bring these good purposes, these faith-prompted acts to bountiful fruitfulness, harvest. Lord, let us see the end. Let us see the fruitfulness of this. So those are the two petitions. And and they're powerful ones, you know, that, that we would go to God and say, God, I want to live a life worthy of the calling, but I can't do it in my own strength. And you go and you say, God, I want to be counted worthy. Lord, will you do in me what will make my life worthy of the call? The other thing is this, God, you've given me dreams. You've given me, uh, you've given me skills. You've given me ideas. You've given me purposes. Now will you bring those to fruition? And you begin to pray, and these are powerful and worthy petitions. But here's the thing. They can still be off course if you don't know the goal of them. See, the problem with so many things is I will do for God, but I'm still really doing for myself. Oh, God, make my church successful for Jesus' sake. But really, I make my church successful so that I will have success and I'll feel secure and I'll feel loved and I'll feel significant. We have to check our hearts. What so often happens is even when we're praying good things, the goal of those good things is not good. And so what does Paul say? Well, here's what establishes any petition as worthy. It's so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified. See, whatever comes out, whatever whatever answers come, it has to be about God glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ in me, in my prayers and in my answers to prayer. That's what Paul makes clear. So this first part is really easy to understand. He's basically, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. So for Paul, his concern that they might be counted worthy of their calling and his deep desire that God might fulfill all of the visions and dreams and destiny that's been prompted by their faith, he's saying that can never be ultimate. There's not the ultimate end. That the the truly the ultimate end of anything you do, uh, any way that you live, What is to be most deeply desired and and what should be the the motivation and the reason for every prayer is that Jesus be glorified. That your maturity, that your growing faith, that your growing fruitfulness or our growing fruitfulness as a body of believers would be that Jesus would be glorified. Now, why is this so important? Well, Carson, who's so helpful to me in this book, His book, Praying with Paul, for this series, he wrote it this way. He said, Lying at the heart of all sin is, is, is the desire to be the center, to be like God. So if we take on Christian service and think of such service as the vehicle that will make us central, we have paganized Christian service, we have domesticated Christian living, and set it to the servitude in a pagan cause that Jesus must be glorified. In other words, it doesn't matter if anybody praises me for my service. It doesn't matter if anybody is delighted or not in my service. Does my service bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it about me getting the glory? Oh, look how spiritual you are. Look how mature you are. Look how fruitful you are if my heart is still loyal, hooked into to the praise of others, then there's going to have to be a breaking, a breaking in me of the need for glory that subtracts from and takes away the glory from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the second part of this, though, kind of blows me away. Because it makes sense that Paul would say that he would be glorified in you. But then Paul goes and and seems like he almost contradicts himself, which he doesn't. But he says, but you be glorified in him. That he would be glorified in you, but that you would be glorified in him. You see, once we settle the issue, and this is, you're going to have to listen to me on this one, but once we settle the issue, all the glory goes to Jesus. And Paul says, as we're growing in that maturity, as we're going deeper and deeper into, into surrendering the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, what happens is we are then being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. I know this sounds contradictory. It's really more of a paradox. It's it's the same paradox of if you pursue happiness, you won't get it. But if you pursue the kingdom, you'll actually get happiness as a byproduct. So here's the thing. If you pursue your own glory, you'll never be glorious. You'll be empty. You'll be counterfeit. You'll be disingenuous. But Paul is saying here, if you actually pursue the glory of Jesus in being counted worthy of his calling and fulfilling every good purpose that he envisions for you and reveals to you, then what's happening is you are actually, because you've made it all about Jesus's glory, now he is transforming you into his image and you actually are are experiencing the reality of his glory in you instead of it just being glory for Him. You see, you got to understand this. When we glorify God, we're not giving Him something substantial. Because we're not adding to Him, and we're not taking anything away from Him. The word in Scripture is we're ascribing to Him. Or in a way, we're magnifying. We're, we're, We're making it the focal point of who He is and what He is. But when we are glorified like Paul is talking about here, in the sense Paul has described, then what's happening is we're becoming more and more like God. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. And so we're being strengthened and we're being <laughs> empowered to exhibit the very characteristics of Christ, which apart from glorifying God, these would not be on display in our lives. So the last one, and I'll try to wrap this up quickly, is that Paul has, has given to God worthy two worthy petitions, not just for Thessalonian Christians, but for all Christians, worth going to the king of kings and petitioning the throne of grace. He's also told us what the goal or what the motive should be to glorify God to yield and surrender and not to try to steal or share the glory. But even in doing so, Paul has said that if you're really glorifying Jesus, then Jesus' glory is transforming you into a person more and more glorious. But where is the supply of this? In other words, on what basis will God answer these petitions? How can I have confidence that if I pray this, That there's going to be the strength and the power and the source for this to become true. Well, Paul says, it's according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is great. Grace means unmerited favor. Grace means it's not deserving. So in other words, if if you're moving as best you can and you're praying this prayer, God, I want to be counted worthy. God, I want every good purpose that you've given to me, every dream that you've given to me, every vision that I want it to come to fruition. And even if all your motives are not perfect and pure, and even if all your understanding is not extensive and has a great depth of insight, see, the supply isn't a supply that's based on your performance. It's a supply of an account that is more than sufficient, more than adequate, that Jesus has put on record for you. All you're doing when you are praying, when you're praying all right, is you're drawing on the credit that Jesus has already put to your account. That's what grace is. See, the reason we pray and the, the source of our answers is never so that we will get what we deserve. It is the grace of God. It is this credit account And it's never about trying harder. What we're doing is we're asking God to do something he already wants to do. God has given us assignments to pursue. And and you know, if in your heart there's an ask, oh, make make me worthy of the calling. Oh, God, bring to fruition these dreams and these hopes and these purposes that I have. Well, who gave you that? Well, God gave it to you. And God wants you to pursue it with your whole heart. But at the same time, he doesn't want you to pursue it without him. He wants you to pursue it from a place of his calling on your life, on a place of his provision, on a place of him being your source. So God's grace must be at work. So here is, is a way to sum it up we become fruitful by grace, we persevere. By grace, we mature by grace. By grace, we grow to love one another more and more. By grace, we cherish, we delight in the holiness, and we delight in a deepening knowledge of God. We cannot be independent and be on the right path. I just want to close with this again. These are the words of Dr. Carson, but they really struck me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, at the heart of all our praying must be a biblical vision. That vision embraces who God is, what he has done, who we are, where we are going, what we must value and cherish. That vision drives us toward increasing conformity with Jesus, toward lives lived in the light of eternity, toward hearty echoing of the church's ongoing cry, even so, come Lord Jesus. That vision must shape our prayers so that the things that most concern us in prayer are those that concern the heart of God. Then we will persevere in our praying until we reach the goal God himself has set for us. As I close, I just want to say this. I want more than anything for you to be happy. I want more than anything for your life to have purpose. I want more than anything for that satisfaction and fulfillment that comes from seeing your dreams and your visions fulfilled and brought to fruitfulness. But you can't seek it by saying, I'm going to go after my dreams. You can't can't see it by saying, I'm going to make myself happy. If you do so, there'll be no glory. There'll There'll only be frustration and futility. What I'm trying to get across to you by the way you pray is you begin to see if I seek to be worthy of his calling. If I bring all my plans and all my agenda and say, Lord, is this your purpose for my life? Then you see, you are saying, I know that this is worthy of me and I know that this is worth my energy because it will bring glory to Jesus. Not because it will just make me happy. But the thing is, if it brings glory to Jesus, Paul says, it will make you glorious, which means you'll be happy. You'll be fulfilled. You'll be satisfied in a way like no other. Seek happiness. You'll never get it. Seek the glory of God. Happiness, success, fulfillment will all be a byproduct. But they'll be real They'll be sustainable. They'll be significant. And they'll last for all eternity. Make your life about glorifying Jesus. In his name, I'm asking you. Amen.